When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the No More Late Fees podcast. I'm Danielle. And I'm Jackie. And we're just two best friends and ex-Blockbuster employees re-watching some of the best and worst movies of the late 90s and early 2000s. And this week we are talking about the film Drumline with our guests TC and Siege from Brown Meets World. Welcome. Hey. Hello, hello. <laughs> if you want to get to know TC and Siege a little better, pause and check out their trailer and then come back for Drumline. But before we dive in, let's get into some housekeeping. If you love the podcast and you want to support us, here are a few ways that you can. Did you know that writing us a review and or rating us helps us get more listeners? If you want to be featured and help us grow, head to Apple, Spotify, Podchasers, or your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review and if you like what you hear and want to buy us a virtual cup of coffee head over to ko-fi.com slash no more late fees and we've got merch we've got shirts shower curtains even something for the dog head to no more late fees.redbubble.com and check out all the cool stuff that we've got lined up. We've got our logo. We have some fun sayings from our episodes. Definitely worth a look and a click and a buy. Okay. <laughs> Shower curtains. Y'all ain't messing around. <laughs> I I'm saw like, that you I'm guys clicking yes to everything that <laughs> Redbubble has. It's fine. <laughs> I saw that you guys launched your merch. It's so beautiful. It really hey. is. Pops. Yeah, we're very excited. We just got into the merch game. A little oh, late, yeah. but we're excited to be there. We were like, oh, wait, everybody's doing merch. <laughs> <laughs> what have we All been right. doing? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So set against the high energy, high stakes world of show style marching bands, Drumline is a fish out of water comedy about a talented street drummer from Harlem who enrolls in a Southern university, expecting to lead its marching band's drumline to victory. He initially flounders in his new world before realizing that it takes more than talent to reach the top. It stars Nick Cannon, Zoe Saldana, Orlando Jones, Leonard Roberts, and Jason Weaver. It was directed by Charles Stone III. It was written by Tina Gordon Chisholm and Sean Sheps. And you can currently watch it on Disney Plus. Can you? Because I bought this. I, I yeah, watched I it, watch on, it on Disney Plus. I absolutely yeah. watched it on Disney Plus. <laughs> I didn't. I figured you. I was like, because I left my Disney Plus on your TV. No, I have Disney Plus because I always just go to IMDb and it tells me where to stream it. And I then would... it was, it was like some two of the ones where you had to watch commercials, and I didn't have time for that. So. It was five bucks on Prime to Aww. buy, so I ended up buying it. I always Google it 
and then it tells me like where I can watch it. And I saw right. Disney Plus, but we're gonna have to get better at this. This is why y'all have to sell merch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so before we start, let's get into our ratings rewind. So you know the drill. Before we get into the movie, we'll reveal the rating our Y2K versions of ourselves would give, and then at the end, we'll see if our current selves agree with our initial rating. Our scale consists of would buy it, would buy it again. The best would play on repeat. Five-day rental. Would watch again. Two-day rental. Okay, but nothing to write home about. Same-day rental. Trash. Straight up offbeat trash. Like Bethune-Cookman. Anywho, <laughs> let's move to the ratings. I had to say it once. I won't say any more trash talk after that. I, I, I don't believe you, but that's okay. You're good to know me. <laughs> I doubt. I, I I doubt any Bethune Cookman people are listening to the show anyways. Talk your shit. Talk your shit. <laughs> Let them know what's up. There are, are rivals. Podcasts. There are rivals. We can say what we want. <laughs> You're in but charge. But I fully support them as an HBCU. Yes. They're just they, not as good as your HBCU. And it's okay that they know that. Thank you. <laughs> They ain't paying your bills. <laughs> <laughs> they ain't paying theirs. Okay, moving on. <laughs> TZ, uh, what was your Y2K rating of Drumline? You know, I, I, I didn't know at what point I should reveal this, but I haven't seen this movie since it came out. So I really don't have a close relationship with the movie. So I'm going to say that probably my Y2K self thought of it as a maybe two-day rental because it definitely didn't leave a lasting impression for me specifically. <laughs> Siege? Mine was would buy it again. I I enjoyed it for the time when it first came out. And yeah, I I have thoughts, but yeah, I think it was would buy it again. <laughs> Jackie? So there was a period of time when I was working at Blockbuster where I just bought everything. And so it was like, I watched it once and it was decent. And so I would buy it. And so when we get into the movies, like after like 2001, my would buy it gets a little skewed, but I will say I own Drumline and maybe watched it once or twice. It was not heavy rotation. So I'll go five day rental. Like I liked it enough to buy it, but then I didn't really watch it after that. It was a would buy for me it was a would buy for me when this movie came out I want to say I was in my sophomore year of college at Florida a University and this was huge this movie wasn't like an experience for our school for everyone at that time because a lot of the kids at my school who played it in the Marching 100, which I have on my shirt right here, <laughs> they played in the fictional band. And it was almost like the movie was telling the experience I was living at the time. So it was very culturally relevant to me at that time. I did buy it on DVD. How many times did I watch it afterwards? Not many. I wasn't a huge cannonball. Uh, <laughs> really? I wasn't, That's surprising. I wasn't. So like there were, you know, but I, I still liked it. Anywho, that that's my, that's my history with it. Let's get into some box office deets. Yes. 
so this movie had a budget of $20 million and it made $57.6 million worldwide. I was able to find a oral history of the entire making of this movie by the entire cast Mm. on a website. And it was so cool and interesting to see like the entire process. So the, the premise of this movie is actually based on Dallas Austin's like experience. He pitched this movie. It was his idea. It's about his life, but it's, it's about his high school experience. He was in a high school band And if you don't know who Dallas Austin is, he's a huge, prolific music producer. If you remember TLC's fan mail, that CD, Life Changing, he produced that. He ended up being with Chili and being her baby daddy. So the experiences of this movie were very important to him. He came up with the concept and he tried to pitch it. And he had been had it had been a in pitching hell for a while he pitched it to fox originally and it just kind of sat there like nothing happened and then you know people will ask him like what happened to that movie so he ended up talking to quincy jones and quincy jones after the show i'll tell you what quincy jones said it's it's written and i'm shocked that dallas austin said what Quincy Jones said, but I'm not going to say it on the podcast. Quincy Jones does not hold his tongue. He does not. By the way, <laughs> reading not. any interview with Quincy Jones is always fascinating because he'll yeah. just give it to you straight. Very politically incorrect. Uh, but he gave some advice. Dallas took it. He got a new producer to help him pitch it. And it was, they actually, I think they had a new studio head at the time and they loved it. And they were like, yeah, let's do it. And the studio had actually said, let's change it from being a high school movie to a college movie. Like, let's make it about being in college. And that actually was great. Turned out to be one one of the best choices that they made. The problem was the studio also felt like there had to be a white person, a white main character added to the script or... Because originally they they felt like they needed the twenty million to make the movie. The studio wanted to give them fifteen million dollars, and even to get the fifteen million, they were like, "You need to have a white cast main character. Like, white audiences aren't going to see this, and this is turning into a black movie." Once they kind of got through the gist of it, I just really quickly. So you're saying that the entire cast, including Orlando, was worth fifteen, but GQ alone was worth five. <laughs> yeah. And I think they were really smart in the way that they casted GQ because GQ is white adjacent. I, I mean, if you said to GQ that he was white, I don't even know if that would download with him <laughs> because honestly, he he's he's half, is it is he Pak- he's Pakistani? Yeah, no, he looks like he's as you said, white adjacent. Yeah, like, one of his parents is from Pakistan, and I hope I pronounced that properly. But yeah, and he does not, he's got a lot of flavor to him. We had him on the show. If you have not listened to the episode, you should go back and listen to our interview with him. He was amazing, and he gave us so many fun facts about this movie and other movies that he was on, and just his, like, musical skills, because he's a musician as well. So anywho, yeah, they made them write a white character into this movie 
but he, he is half Pakistani. Okay. Yep. So yeah. And he, he was down, like he was a part of that cast and they were able to have him in there, but not center him. But I think if you go back and look at some of the promos, I feel like he is more mm-hmm. of a prominent face in the promos than in the actual movie. And I think the thing that is kind of similar is what happened in Bring It On, which we're going to be doing. I was going to say the reverse of Bring It On. <laughs> um, because they, they ended up doing some extra promos because listen to our Bring It On episode. I'll tell you guys about that. Yeah. Anywho. So well, again, can I just yeah. quickly say about that tidbit? You know, when I go back and I watch classic Black movies, Boys in the Hood, New Jack City, set it off. I'm like, I need at least one white character in this movie. Otherwise, I can't <laughs> I can't connect to it. And so, like, I get where the studio was coming from because I need a little bit of mayonnaise on my sandwich, you know? Right. Well, it's, like, crazy to me that they were like, we don't want to, it's turning into a Black movie. It's going, it is a Black movie. It is it's a Black, black movie. College, <laughs> it's another Black college. It's turning into a Black movie. You know, the one at the HBCU. <laughs> <laughs> but Dallas Austin said, this is not a Black movie. It's a story. Yeah. This is a, a story. We have this conversation all the time because we watch a lot of television. And I believe like in a television or in movie, all you need is two Black people two black people for it to be considered like a diverse movie mm-hmm. but one is diverse two is like oh more than two and it's it's a black production right. more mm-hmm. than two black characters in a movie no matter how big the cast is and it's considered a black movie and that is insanity but you know i have to say is it a chicken or an egg situation right is it that we're conditioned that people are conditioned this way to think this way or is it that they're thinking this way and they're like we've got to cater to that because when I think about it there are so many movies that I know in my lexicon because I you know I'm black and I'm like of course I'm going to see black movies but there are a lot of black movies that white people wouldn't even think to see, don't even know they exist. It's like there's a blind spot to it for them. And Correct. they're like, I don't, I didn't even know. Like there's sometimes even on our Instagram, I'll post certain things like very classic movies. I don't, I don't even want to say black movies, just classic movies. And people are like, never seen it, never seen it. Don't know what this is. And I'm just like, how? How is this possible? You know, know I I think something to that is that it felt like even though, you know, there was there was so much black content available for like us in the 90s, it all kind of felt like there were similar stories being told, Mm -hmm. you know, like that whole concept of like hood movies is basically what the late 80s to like the mid 90s, like that that kind of sums up so many what people would consider to be black films. But nowadays, I feel like we've really stepped away from this this monolith narrative and now it's like well black panther is a black movie and moonlight is a black movie like they can just be so many different things now and i think that audiences are becoming at least more diverse in general so i think that there's more of the public maybe open to these things and i think there's more diverse storytellers who are saying hey we're not just one thing either and i think that allows you know more 
I guess, non-people of color to kind of see these experiences as really rich and interesting. But I would say that any Hood movie from the 90s, any classic one, is probably just as good as any drama that Scorsese put out in the last 10 years. So, like, it really just, you know, you have to kind of open yourself up to those things as well. Yeah, I think those movies were kind of forced into a category because the studios were like, oh, well, Boys in the Hood did well. We've got to keep making these. And we're okay with making these because it fits the narrative that we're trying to push. But I think a lot of really good creators, directors, writers were able to make their stories their own. And and now we can look back at them and say, like, these are very deep and rich movies beyond just the the environment. But I do also like that because of those movies, we do have in the late 90s, early 2000s, we have this Black Renaissance where you have movies like The Best Man and the wood and and even drumline where a lot of black people were saying you know what our stories of you know us living our lives and and being successful are not being shown on the big screen at all i think we were seeing it on tv we had a lot of black characters and and black families like would start kicking off with like the cosby show and kind of moving in that direction but we weren't seeing it on the big screen so i do love this time period where we got really I felt like a suburban kid that I was seeing myself in some of these where I couldn't necessarily always relate in movies that was not it was not my experience you know exactly I think like to me it's about universal storytelling what kind of like feeling it like what kind what parts of the story are universal and can be felt by anyone and like we had we had joked previously in the trailer but like when I think of Save the Last Dance, do you consider that a Black movie? Because I consider that an MTV movie. Like, I, like when I think about it, I was like, it has a large Black cast and one white star. So I wonder who considers that a Black movie? Because yeah. the protagonist is a white girl seeing yeah, Blackness through her point of view. She's centered. And it's just like why Remember the Titans is not a Black movie. Mm. Oh, yeah. Because like, that is a a movie about race, but it is digestible for white people. Whenever you have a movie that is literally a fictional tale of something that really happened about racism, but white people are like, I love that movie. It <laughs> is it's not a black movie. But you no, you have you seen the blind side though? Because I don't know <laughs> if that fits for that one. <laughs> I, I guess to me, like I'm I'm just thinking about all of the movies like set it off for for me is another one where it's like that's just a good heist movie yeah and i think that some people may consider that oh a black movie but it's like no like that's like so many of those things are just beat for beat a heist movie Mm -hmm. the characters are black but like you should be able to enjoy it as just a heist movie but as yeah. Black people, we know that. We know it's yeah. just a movie. We yeah. obviously are more, we might gravitate more towards it because we have our own system, which is great segue back into this movie, which is based at an HBCU, which is a historically Black college or university, which is something that had to be made because there weren't colleges and universities available to Black people when they wanted to go for higher learning. The same thing could be said about Hollywood movies. We have our own Black Hollywood. We have Black famous because 
we had to make our own avenues because it wasn't available per se, but they are just movies. But going back to the white lens, because they're not centered, it is very rare that the larger consensus of white people will see some of these movies, like Set It Off. I could say Set It Off to a bunch of people and that are white, and most likely a lot of them aren't going to even know what that movie is. Mm. Same with Soul Food, which is just a great family movie. It's just yeah. a great family drama movie. <laughs> So <laughs> now that we have a, a warm entry into Drumline, so we know who got this movie greenlit. Just like the whole process of casting was interesting as well. I just want to say this. Rap Silk the Shocker apparently was offered the role of Devin, played by Nick Cannon, but turned it down due to creative differences. I wonder what they were. I have to know what they were. <laughs> what like you got to stand on Silk the Shocker? Let me tell you, the way I was sweating that man, okay? Really? Uh -oh. I really thought okay. out really? of the No Limit Soldiers, that mm -hmm. was my boy right there. Okay. okay. I want to hear your top five of all the No Limit Soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you had like a ranking. You were like, out never. of all of them, uh, I want the shock. <laughs> but he, like, when they came out, he was the cute one. I don't know what the other ones were looking like, but I was like, oh, he looks cute. I like him. And he used to have like an open shirt sometimes. Yeah. 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 You had to have that open shirt. Yeah. <laughs> What a different timeline it would have been had he took it and he yes. took over Nick Cannon's life. Soak the shocker on Wildin' Out? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> the host of The Masked Singer? Yeah. 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 Still, still going by Soak the Shocker in his old age. Exactly. <laughs> but the other names that just really, that were up for Devin were, they, some people, some of the notes said, that Little Wayne and Ti were up for the role, but here's the I thing: I can see Ti. I can see. I can see Ti for sure. They weren't up for the role; they auditioned. I just like to change the verbiage a little bit. They auditioned. That makes a big difference. It and does. Yeah. Speaking of audition, it was down to Zoe Saldana and Carrie Washington. Which, mm -hmm. first of all, absolutely, if you are in Hollywood at that time. These are your, this is the market that you're shopping in. Yeah. Uh, and it is Carrie Washington or sorry, Zoe Saldana. I say this because I've been waiting to say, this is the blackest role Zoe Saldana does in her entire career. I was like, has she been around this many black people since? Okay. I'm glad you brought this up because I was like, don't do it, Danielle, but I'm going to do it. So... You're talking about Nina Simone, right? No, I, I'm not getting there yet. But I, I will say this. If you, that the oral history that I read and she is being interviewed during that, just the verbiage and some of the things that she says about her getting this role and how she talks about it. I, oh, spill you, the tea. Spill the tea. You can read I'm going to say colorism right off the bat. I'm just going to say it. Because if you have Terry Washington or Zoe Saldana the moment I saw Zoe Saldana in the group of friends that they put her in, I'm like, oh, she's the lightest one. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they, like almost, it's like she's set up for right. the canon to be like, and who who would you be choosing Ooh. within this group? <laughs> I think it definitely a hair factor for sure. 
but the director did say Harry <laughs> this is what he said Carrie was too polished like way too polished and I think when you read between the lines her acting caliber in comparison to like a Nick Cannon definitely I, it would like I could not believe that he was going to get her I hate to say it, but it I, I, you know what? Now that you say that, like I would need a different lead if Carrie Washington was in the movie. I do not yeah. believe that he could spit game to her. Zoe Saldana, is she fresh off a of crossroads in this? Yeah, because oh, that came out in two thousand one. Yeah, and center stage. So one of the things she complained about was that she was she's a trained ballerina, a trained classical dancer, and she just was trying to get away from dancing roles and this was a dancing role but she spoke to the fact that she was glad she was a part of this movie because it's such a important part of American history that needed to be told but she you know had a hard time in the beginning when they were doing dancing because it's very different than classical dancing and of the southern African-American experience Yes, this is the blackest movie that she's been in, but also I have a problem with her talking about being in, like now that she has the clout that she has and where she's at, she kind of complains about the fact that she's never been able to be in a movie that represents who she is as an Afro-Latina, but she doesn't clarify that in a way because she has all these roles that could have gone to african-american actresses and had no problem with that so i get a little side eye about her relationship to that kind of thing it, it's it's giving i know black vibes absolutely well yeah and that's why i had to bring up the nina simone conversation because that was the major complaint with her being casted as nina simone was that she is so light-skinned she's afro-latina and that she didn't have the you know nina simone is a classically dark-skinned woman right so it, it was definitely rubbed people the wrong way and yeah i do I, and here's the thing as an afro latino i would say that it's nice to have our own people to cheer for and it's nice to have our own community i, I was telling siege that like it wasn't until miles morales that it feel like people accepted afro latinos as their own thing as like right. oh yeah there's latinos that also experience racism but it's it's also a different experience and you know even me and Siege experience colorism, you know, it, it, throughout my life, I've, I've seen it in different ways. So it, it's, you have to acknowledge it. You have to acknowledge it and understand that it plays a part. You know, if they're only looking at Kerry Washington and Zoe Saldana, like they're not looking at, you know, I can't even think of a, a darker skinned actress from the time period to consider because they're not and throwing them their names out there. Gabrielle Union. You I was going to say, I mean? is Gabrielle darker? I was like, literally, a little, like, little oh my, bit, a little like a bit shade. darker. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, I just, I just, I just have a problem with the language that she uses about talking about these experiences and it it doesn't feel authentic and it's just sad because we as a as the diaspora are rooting for her right but the sense that she's not fully aligned in that diaspora completely so as we jump into Drumline, we see it is graduation 2002. Nick Cannon plays the role of Devin, 
And it's like an aerial view. It's a very cool cinematic shot of like the class of 2000 sitting there with their mortar caps on. But he he is manspreading like no one has manspread before. <laughs> I'm like, sir, stay in your space. I don't care that you're bored. Right. People need leg room too. He was letting um, all his babies <laughs> he's gonna air it out yeah. well he's wearing a gown he can't be constrained <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's very bored but his mama sure is proud as yeah. his name is called with her puka shells hey don't knock the puka shells <laughs> I'm bringing them back like, I'm not wearing them now but I've been wearing them all week I'm like <laughs> and ta- for the time period puka shells such a hot yeah it was giving me veronica mars logan eccles vibes with her little puka shell necklace but then at the conclusion of graduation the band performs this is as we talked about in our trailer if you want to go back and listen i believe i can fly by r kelly which <sighs> it, it cuts a steep <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everybody played that at graduations. It's true. R. Kelly has touched the lives of so many children. (laughs) Um, Dark humor. (laughs) (laughs) And so then we see Devin kind of start to add some flavor to the beat. He and he kind of gets the whole drum line in on it too. And then we see him posing for pictures with his mom. And she's like, can't you just make a normal face? Like, why why are you going to be cutting up? I and just, then, go ahead. I love how his, the band director looks so irritated. And I could just imagine him said, he's like, I'm so glad this boy is fucking graduating. <laughs> yes. But then he really gets into it. He's like, whatever, like, this beat is hot. Like, he <laughs> just gets over it really fast. And then mom, correct me if I'm wrong. Does mom say something about fast girls in college? She does. She does. That and is I a black a, mama line. I have such a problem. Like, like again, this is like, I think we've learned a lot since yeah. like the 2000s, clearly. But like calling the girls fast as if it's the girls problem. And like <laughs> this idea, like that was totally something I noted. It was like, oh, those fast college girls. And it's just like, all right. When did you have Devin? Let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> also, the conversation is never like, hey, you as a as a man, you Strap need to up. have you responsibility. Are to Nick you Cannon. need to have. Oh, you know what? You're right. You're right. As a candle, I'm that. saying, I'm saying if anyone needed to have the conversation about yeah. being fast, it's Nick Cannon. Well, even in the next scene where he goes and confronts his dad in the subway, he's like, I don't have a bunch of kids running around. I'm like, yet. There should be a yet. When he said that, I died laughing. I was just like, there could not have been a better, just like foreshadowed it. But I just died. It is hilarious. On the internet, that is the one scene where someone was like, this has not aged well. And then also, if you listen to that scene... And you think about who Nick Cannon is. I was like, oh, this is a speech from his kids. <laughs> <laughs> it kids, is his... kids. It's too many. <laughs> it, 
it was his future kids traveling back through time to tell him. I love the idea of his children memorizing that speech and giving it to him on their 18th birthday. Please. I love that somebody updated IMDb just about that line. It's it, this in the beginning of the movie, Nick Cannon says, da, 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 and now he has 80 million kids. Like somebody exactly. had to go and update that. And I, because it's so, it's so hilarious to see that line come out of his mouth, considering <laughs> what he is known for now. Irony. You know, I, I do want to say, I thought he acted really well in that scene. Like just to give him a little bit of props, like I yeah. thought his performance in that scene was actually pretty good. The director told him, like, I don't want any of that, the the caricatures that you have to do on TV. Because remember, Nick had multiple TV shows on Nickelodeon. He was the guy at Nickelodeon at that time. And so this was like his first serious non-comedic role. And he's just like, I want you to kind of like be yourself. And you're right. I think he did a pretty good job considering Like we said, Devin goes to the subway. His dad works as a subway attendant. It's obvious he hasn't been a a part of Devin's life. And so he's like, I don't have kids. I've got a full ride scholarship to college to play the drums. You didn't help at all. That's why I didn't invite you to my graduation. But by the way, I graduated type thing. And he also notes that, and I'm doing something with my music, which tells us a huge glimpse that his dad was a musician and didn't. That didn't come to fruition. So, so the the college he attends is a fictional college in the movie. It is called Atlanta A&T, but it is based off of where, Danielle? Well, I, I got this off of IMDb, but I wonder who put that in there because I'm not really sure <laughs> if it. So, so here's the premise. My a lot of people from my school claim that the movie is based on Florida AM. I do actually believe it's based on a high school in Atlanta because obviously the movie was supposed to be about a high school. But I can say there's a ton of inspiration about Florida AM AM we've woven into this movie because and I'll layer those in later. So yeah, I, Danielle, I I just want to clarify. How would the Georgia-based HBCUs feel about your <laughs> proclamation? They look ain't nobody better than the hundred. I don't care what they say. Clark Atlanta ain't beating the hundred. And Spellman and Morehouse, do they have fans? No, Damn. they're trying to be. El- they don't. I don't even think they do. They're trying to be elite. You know, that's what they're known for. So where this movie takes place is obviously Atlanta and this is a fictional school but in Atlanta there are there are four core well at the time there were four core historically black colleges we had Clark Atlanta we have Morehouse which is an all male school and we have Spelman which is all female and then you had Morris Brown which is another the rival in this movie mm-hmm. now it is also rumored that the rival school that Morris Brown plays was offered to Florida A&M mm. or that they would be in that battle of the bands. But at the time, our elite, our wonderful Dr. White, who was the band director at the time, was like, "Bam, you doesn't lose. Ah, <laughs> you know what? 
I love it. I respect it. That's <laughs> Vin, Vin Diesel rules. Like I'm not gonna lose on screen. <laughs> so I we mean, don't acknowledge losing here. It's a rumor, but you know I could see it that it tracks. <laughs> but a lot of the people in the band that played in the band were FAMU um, students. The the guy who is Nick Cannon's double in the film mm-hmm. and who like really teaches him a lot of his drum skills his name is jason price aka snoop and he was a sophomore at famu at the time and wow. even the band director that they got from an, a local atlanta high school he was a florida AM alum and also ex-drum major so top tier so there's a lot of famu a lot of fans. Danielle, now on. were you in the band or were you just <laughs> I'm a just a groupie, y'all. I'm just, just a groupie. Group. Okay. <laughs> As you should be. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I mean, I did a lot of research because my school is very important to me. And I sure. called some I have a lot of friends that were in the band. I called one of my friends and we were going back and forth. I was asking a lot of questions because I wanted to know if this experience that we're seeing in this movie was real like did this happen did they have these little factions and were they you know I don't want to say haze that's a not a good word for our our band if you want to know look it up okay talk about it I Um, have a lot of comments about that in this movie (laughs) we're from Florida remember we I know I'm talking (laughs) we know a school scandal (laughs) Um, Devin is on a bus with a few of his bandmates heading to college and so they kind of make introductions in that scene so we're introduced to jason was it charlie char Jason ernest ernest charles yeah jason Uh, ernest and charles now charles character is very annoying to me and i don't remember if he's in remember the titans i think i think he is and he was just as annoying to me in that movie as he is in this one but they are not going just to school they are at school a little bit earlier than everybody else which is totally normal a lot of the band people go during the summer because they literally have to train I mean, being in a band in the HBCU is very difficult. Like, you're not just playing music. You are physically being pushed to the limits so that you can keep up. It is not for the light of heart. You know, I I, I do want to just say this because I was friends with a lot of people who were in the high school band and who went on to do college bands. And then an ex of mine was actually a band director in my (laughs) 20s. So I spent a lot of times at these things. And this shit is serious. Like, like in the movie, like I was kind of writing like, oh, it's kind of ridiculous that they're taking it this seriously. But the truth is, is that like, this is accurate to the experience, not just HBCUs, but just college like marching bands in general. Mm -hmm. You're there like a month before doing training and learning the material you have to do constant auditions like that whole thing of being first chair like they take that shit seriously drum major Mm -hmm. like you can have a full ego trip and like it's just tolerated so (laughs) there's just so much about what this movie explores about this culture that's at least accurate from the experiences I've heard from my close friends also I think it's important to note that like what I thought watching this movie was like oh I'm like oh it's kind of like a sports movie in like the montage and like the setup and I was like but that's because it's it should be equally respected like just like Mm -hmm. bring it on was a movie about like you 
think that cheerleading is just like this thing that happens at games, but it's just as difficult and just as much of a craft. I would say that Drumline was like that movie for band where it's like, oh, it seems like just something to do during halftime, but these people take it very seriously. And it is an art form to be able to play a heavy instrument while walking around in all types of weather. So yeah, I thought I thought that was amazing. And I'm glad you said that because the director actually said to like, I think the cin- cinematographer and all that, he's like, this movie is about band, but we are making a sports movie. So mm-hmm. y- you're absolutely correct. That is the way that they were making this film. That's so funny. Cause I also got like a lot of like sister act vibes from it. Just <laughs> like, Y'all been doing it the old way for too long. We got to change it up. We gotta <laughs> get the people in the seats. <laughs> That's that's a good movie. Well, and the when I started watching it, I'm like, as soon as we were introduced to Dr. Lee, played by Orlando Jones, who is the band director, I'm like, this is pitch perfect. <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where this is, is they're doing where... it in, in like the traditional way, and they're mm-hmm. not winning, but they're stuck in that rut of tradition and convincing the leader to change and update their ways and different new is not always bad. And then you like conglomerate, like you weave together the old and the new, and then you win. So what you're but- saying is pitch perfect stole drumline. Yes. <laughs> so it's funny. I told T while watching this, while we're talking about Dr. Lee, the Orlando Jones character, I was like, there is a lot of classism in this movie, specifically the idea of hip hop and all this other stuff Mm -hmm. is like not respectable music. It's not respectable art. And he's like, no, like I'm a classic artist. We, we are, we do the classics here in traditional band and there is a way to have both. And I like that the movie like ultimately gets there, but we can't ignore the fact that a lot of what is disregarded about what Dr. Lee feels is modern music or modern style or whatever is this lack of respect in even the Black community at the time of like, there was like this tiered system of like, lacked respectable i.e the bill cosby way of doing things and then like what those hoodlums are doing like when he was like i'm not gonna play the thong song i'm like right what's wrong with the thong song have you heard cisco falsetto like (laughs) (laughs) but i I think it also speaks to but with anything in within black culture it's it it definitely is a trickle down for for what we are receiving from the white community and a lot of the things that we continue on or push is more of a survival tactic a lot of the times because we want to be able to navigate the world in a way where we can be successful and I think a lot of people have that mindset instead of just being who we are and even when when it comes to marching bands you know there is such a difference a divide between a pwi marching band Mm -hmm. and you know when he does what is the flight of the bumblebee or whatever Mm -hmm. that song that is very much like the high level of what you're going to play from a marching band like you have to get that is a very difficult song to play And, and you i see black bands play it 
trust me but for a white band that is like a normal thing that they play at a house I remember the first time I went to a white football game and I said what the fuck is this <laughs> you know what it was I went to University of Florida I was visiting Jackie's sister we went to a game because my college they had those what are those games called where they take a, a smaller team and they whip them um, but like they pay they end up paying the school the larger school pays a smaller school just to kind of like play yeah. play up on them so that they can like warm up or whatever so I knew we were not going to even go, come close fo- from a football standpoint against UF but I said but you just wait Heather you wait till my band gets up on that stage <laughs> onto that grass we about to tear it up tear it up you know, and watching them white people like oh but a lot of people know what fam is about anyways it's it wasn't surprised but like the pride that you feel about that whole situation but the bands are just like vastly different I think you could kind of see maybe there's like a movement to the middle now mm-hmm. but not even okay. close so I, I wanted to speak on this because I thought this was such an interesting dispute between this kind of like old school versus new school because it's multifaceted Mm -hmm. because first of all within marching band classical music is so racist (laughs) like i don't know if you guys were in like college or high school bands but like you are almost exclusively playing classical music from white artists because no non-white person was considered classical evidently so you are just constantly doing that as the standard And when you go to marching band competitions that aren't HBCUs, you are going to see all of that. Just that classic, almost military type of marching band, like that style being preferred. And so it's just like there's there's racism happening within just the whole dynamic of choosing music for a marching band and how you display it. Yeah. But within the Black community, there's always been, you know, at least within the last hundred years or so, this conversation of jazz versus hip hop. And, right. you know, you know, it seems like Black people are were responsible for the culture and we're responsible for creating new things. And I wouldn't say responsible in a bad way, but just like we just do. Yeah. We're, we're constantly creating the newness that there doesn't seem to be this protection of the like carrying a legacy or you know for jazz like it just doesn't seem like there's this culture to protect it the way that like white people do with classic rock for example like you know (laughs) there's there's this thing of just like even if you ask any white person today and you just bring up like Leonard Skinner they'll probably know a few songs and they'll probably hold them in great reference but I don't know that the average black kid today could list a Louis Armstrong song or Miles Davis song because it's not something that we're like passing along so I understand Dr. Lee's perspective of like, hey, carrying on that legacy as well is also important. So there's just a lot of interesting conversations happening from like a race standpoint and a generation standpoint. But yeah, it is generational because it's funny now that white people hold jazz to a very high regard. When you look back, you could even cite the musical Chicago in the way that jazz was considered any music that were was black was considered no bueno and jazz was used as a way to blame the crime that was happening in in this country and was considered like classical like you said classical music here and jazz jazz was not great you know why because jazz was a feeling this is music with feeling that you you can't put notes to it per se, 
it and it every time a musician would play jazz it might not be the same time the same thing you saw the show before because they are going to have different movements so it was just so outside of the box but it also was a, a way for people to express what they were going through socially for as black people. And it's just really funny as that generation got older that they couldn't look at rap in the same way because it was literally jazz in a different time period. And- it's funny. It's funny to me because I think the thing that makes this movie really interesting to me and why I kind of really loved it on this rewatch is it brings up really good ideas like as you were talking about with jazz the thing about Devin's character is he has a different form of intelligence like that ability to watch someone do something once just watch them and then you can pick up the music notes without being able to read music yourself right it's like that is a that's a talent and that should absolutely be nurtured however dr lee is right that you need to know the basics before you can break the rules Mm -hmm. and that's what i really loved because he says something early on it's like we need to educate and then entertain and what dr lee is trying to do is he's trying to make sure that these kids have a fundamental understanding of where their music came from so when they are trying to create new music they actually understand where that music is rooted from if that makes any sense so i understand his goal but it is very much like we can only do the classics and we do not respect the new stuff but i also like i I always felt torn about it because i understood where dr lee was coming from and i felt like if he had just kind of maybe said it in a it did still feel elitist. It still felt. Oh, it is elitist. Mm-hmm. It, 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 but it also felt like white people need you to know this mm. and you can't do mm. what you're doing. But he was a genius, essentially. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying about jazz versus classical. It's like classical is being able to make all of these rules about time signatures and keys and tempos. And jazz is just like, bro, let's just feel it. And so it it almost kind of comes down to that same understanding of just that white people kind of need, at least musically, needed that kind of structure. Whereas, you know, there seems to be this like instinct to express yourself outside of the structure that whiteness approved of. Right. Well, it's even visually represented when Jason is like, he's not feeling the music he's going through. He knows, he knows what he needs to play, but there's just some piece missing. And Devin goes in and kind of gives him that key to, this is how you feel the music and work with the music and make it a part of you. I, yeah, I mean, Look, I I could say it all day that so many things are rooted in racism and you would be amazed. (laughs) (laughs) You would be amazed. And like, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, why are you always bringing race into it? Because it's everywhere. It's just unfortunate that so people are like in a bubble. They don't realize it that. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with once you buy into the idea of whiteness, you have to give up your culture, right? So when people moved here from other places, you were Italian, you were Russian, you were Irish, you weren't white. That that concept is like something that they bought into so that they could have a sense of like being higher than. 
But when you buy into that, you have to let go of the, the ties of those, those culture that you have. And then what do you have? Because whiteness offers nothing, right? It offers no real culture. It is an absorption of things. It's like literally mocking or repeating something that you're seeing, but not quite understanding and being able to have that touch point of where culturally it comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and they it's don't a, understand that. It's an absorption and a regulation. Yes. Like that's what it becomes. And again, I think the character of Devin is supposed to be a little unpolished and a little more like like I said, there's a reason why he is shown the most as feeling the music and mm-hmm. understanding, like having an inherent understanding. And my whole point is to say that, like, I feel like Devin's right in the term of in order to progress, you have to go back to like the feeling of the music. But Dr. Lee is right in in order to be successful, you have to have an understanding of the basics. Yeah. And it this movie to me does a really good job of being like, no, it's both. Like you're wrong here and you're wrong here. And both of your egos kind of helped prevent you from right. seeing that for a little bit. But if you can put your ego aside and listen to each other intergenerationally, interclass, inter like so many other things, great things can come from it. I I, I agree with you. I I, do, I think success, I would change the word success to survival because yeah. what is yeah. success really, it depends on who's defining The it, definition, yes. Right? But I also think it's a, like they put, yes, Devin needs to learn the music to survive in this realm and in, in this space. But also it's like, especially mm-hmm. I feel like Sean uses that elitism part that he would get from Dr. Lee because he knows he's not as good as Devin and yeah. uses it as a way to ground him or make him take him down a few notches because he's so good. And when, especially in the black community, when we are excellent at things or we're really good at things and we know, and we sit in that and we have no problem being prideful in it, in a sense, it is not deemed okay. We are not allowed to have a big head about our gifts and skills. We have I'm, to learn how to like, not show that out. Yeah. out yeah. I, I'm so glad you brought up this idea of black excellence. Cause I actually think that's to Dr. Lee's own detriment is trying to be the black exception is trying to be one of the good ones. And yes. I feel like so many times, you know, that's seen as like the preferred method in order to make it in the white world in order yeah. to make it in society. Mm-hmm. But like, to your own point, that whole striving for black excellence, he was ignoring, you know, Devin's innate excellence that he that he had. So I just think it, it just kind of blinded him to to excellence that he could have utilized in the band earlier. I don't think he ignored it. I think Danielle's right in the sense that he was like, you can't, you can't succeed in college, or you can't succeed in the white world if you don't know how to control yourself if you don't know how to read music you know like there's so many things where he looked at him and he was like you are limiting yourself 
and your options by not adhering to what white people expect. Right. And so I think he understood. I think one of the things that everyone understands is they look at Devin and they're like, this kid has it. He's smart. He's so talented and it's inherent. But I think something that anyone who, especially like Black children raised in the 80s and 90s and 2000s understands is that you were taught that your Black excellence has to be palatable Mm -hmm. and it has to like take, take all of that energy, take all of that excellence and filter it in a way where you don't scare anyone off. Filter it in a way to where you are still seen as respectable. It's respectability politics is what he was concerned about. And it's also, again, survival. So there's, I forgot what the word is, what like the phrase of it it's called. But if you ever notice Black parents will, you probably know what I'm going to say. I know exactly what you're talking about. They will, if they're talking to another person out, you know, a white person let's say and they're like oh your son is doing so well and like so great and then white person's like yes he is and then it's like oh wait but your son actually has the highest grade oh he's giving me so much trouble that guy oh i can't deal with him the parent will downplay how well the child is and will even downplay it into the child will never can't gas your child up too much because you know to go out and survive in the real world you're you cannot let them know that you're excellent and that comes from slavery in the sense that that boy can't read right and to have a child in slavery was a, an act of rebellion in some way if you did it and try to keep them, you know, and if they wanted to, if they saw that there was too much capability in your child, you might potentially lose them. So you might say, oh, no, he's stupid or whatever you will have to do to protect that child and make them have their head down. So it's just like so many generations of learning these survival tactics actually cause us to have these things that are happening and we don't even realize. And so like educators, parents we are doing things in our communities to essentially that would keep us safe instead of just saying go for the clouds you know because we know that's not something that is at that we have access to essentially right and to your point like you develop survival mechanisms because they serve you for a period of time right and so you know deciding you know how to talk to young children and realizing hey maybe you know the thing that was told to me in 1960 doesn't serve this person in 2023 like you know what I mean just kind of like understanding but also having the understanding to prepare them for the realities of of life as well there's a balance there and I, I don't even know that I know what it is yeah and we're seeing that now with generationally and that's not just to black the black population this is happening across the board where you're seeing, you know, it's like boomers are mad that we're able to go into work and say, no, that's against my mental health or I need a mental health day, like things that they were never able to do. And what they get pissed. They're like, well, that's not something you can do. And now we're learning, especially like Gen Z and Gen, Gen Alpha, there's like no limits. They're like, yeah, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it. <laughs> And it's not something we ever thought to do. And it's almost like we're getting a backlash because they're they're upset that we're becoming so free of 
these constraints and these rules that what do they exist for? We're questioning that, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, we're also doing the work to unpack the trauma that caused the right. survival mechanism to begin with. So we're doing the work. <laughs> you know, one thing I wanted to to mention that I had wrote in my notes when I was watching the movie was that, you know, they give Devin such a hard time for his attitude, but I kind of stand with Devin in that sense of like, you have to give respect to get respect. And Mm -hmm. this is the reason why I could not do the military. I could not do a frat. I couldn't do any of that shit. I was like, you ain't talking to me that way. I'm not shaving my head. Like, like I'm a person. Like, why do I need to run around and do this hazing shit? Like I, that just was never something that I was able to get behind. And so anytime that they were kind of pushing that on him and he rebelled against it, I was like, hell yeah. Like, forget these people. Like, why are you shaving your head? Go ahead. My friend DJ, who was in the band, He's like, it's not like for him, the understanding wasn't that it's necessarily hazing in some ways, but it's so that you become a unit, you become one. And that's so much of the things that you're kind of enduring is because they know what's going to be down the road that you don't really know that you're going to need this endurance. You need to, you're going to need to run. You're going to need to do push-ups because this is going to be a full Hmm. body experience when you're out there really playing. Now, some people take it way too far. And I do agree with you that some of these things were beyond just like getting you prepared for the band and what you need to do. And it was more like, you need to follow my command. I think a lot of that was shown with Sean because that was more of his ego situation than him having the his group like the top of mind. The pur- you know? a, a purpose for- right the action i think this movie is good because almost every character has like a point so to speak but they also maybe go around about it for the wrong reasons like so for example to me as you said it's less hazing like it comes like of course it comes off as hazing if you're 19 or whatever but it's like no you sean says it right he's like when they hear you they're they won't hear you sorry what did it say they're like, they won't hear you. They hear the band. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you're doing good, but the point is for the band to sound good. All of us, collectively, that's what we're judged on. We're not judged on your solo. We're judged on us as a unit. So he's right there. Specifically when Devin grabs the one drum, the really nice drum, and he's like, you're mm-hmm. not ready for that yet. And then later we see him running up the stairs and Devin drops it. And he's like, this is why you don't, have that nice drum yet because you're not ready to perform with this really expensive piece of equipment there is something to be said about the lessons that are trying to be taught but it Mm -hmm. is important to know when you are talking specifically to a young black child about authority why you are you need to give them a reason as to why you are instilling these lessons because for someone like Devin, his exceptionalism has gotten him this far. Right. That's why he said, they came to me. Mm-hmm. They said they need me. Why? Because my innate ability to stand out is what got your attention. But you are right. The teachers are right when they say that is true. But in order for us, in order for you to get the attention and acclaim that you want, you yeah. have to be able to join a team. And I think it also is generational as well, because our parents and our grandparents, 
they didn't give us reasons like children that whole idea that children are meant to be seen and not heard is like a concept like they they almost feel like you are when you ask a question it's for understanding and not challenging per Mm -hmm. se and I feel like a lot of stuff could be avoided if they could just tell us the purpose or the the reason why like don't call me a crab and tell me I'm an asshole because I didn't want to wear a white shirt like you know what I mean like the way they talk to him and and try to force him into like to me it almost felt like forced conformity which I know isn't it everyone's making great points they're trying to make him one unit one team (laughs) all that shit but it also feels like they have to they're like purposefully trying to break him down without like you said giving him the proper explanation being like hey the reason why you can't do that is this it's almost like no you you didn't do this and I'm going to shame you for it versus giving you the explanation. What and- Sean does, Sean is trying to break him and not exp- like the real reason why they do it. They, mm-hmm. We wear white because we, we want to get everybody used to being in a uniform and white is the most accessible. Everybody has a white t-shirt. Like instead of like having though that thought through, but the, he's Sean is just doing the trauma that was done to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. any reason yep. and he's just repeating it because it worked for him and not understanding that this is not the same type of person and you can't do that with everybody and I think we're learning now more than ever especially with everybody realizing that they have ADHD and all the things that they went through in school and with the way that we that everyone learns differently and we're dealing with children now who are like asking why we cannot just say because I said so they're not accepting that well I think it's important Danielle to your point the because I said so and this is so important to remember specifically before the 80s it was in fact because it's like no 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 you are too young to understand the systems that place and how deadly it can be to step out of line like deadly like if someone says something to you and you don't immediately shut up and listen to the black elder in the room, you could literally get every person of color shot yeah. in that room, every single one. So like they, it was really important for just do it. You, I don't have time to explain to you in this very moment <laughs> right. how much danger we're in. Right. Just listen to me and don't ask questions. Like, that's kind of like what it was. But now, they could have said that, but they didn't say that. No, no, I'm, I'm saying like that, that takes time in the moment. Yeah, and and yeah. I'm all I'm saying is that you were accurate when you say a whole generation was raised under that kind of yeah, authority. Right. And then you get the millennials <laughs> who, you know, or the Gen Xers who were just raised with the Cosby show and we were raised um, by the TV, we were by yeah, ourselves. Power Rangers mm-hmm. and you can be anything. So this, I, and a whole decade of, I don't see color, you know, like all of these <laughs> things. So when we got to an age where you were like, just do what I say, we were like, I don't think so. <laughs> You've been at work my whole life now. You want to come talk exactly. to me? You don't just get to come in and tell me what to do without a good reason and or explanation, especially since we are so like, we will follow instructions that make sense. We will not follow the instructions that don't make sense. Mm -hmm. So if you don't take the time to tell me why it makes sense, then why am I listening to you? Right. So that's like, I just wanted to point out that you are accurate when you say why the generational is in that 
it really did have to start with us being like, oh, it is not that the older generation had ill intentions. They literally just did not have the time and or words to explain why. And now we spend most of our time (laughs) with any generation being like, like not even to a younger generation, to ourselves being like, hey, do you know how you were taught to do this? Well, this is the reason why. And we're all like, oh! (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, like, being kids of the internet, too, like, we're used to being able to find the answers to the thing we have a question about. So you can't tell us just to listen and follow along when it's like, no, like, I can find the reason for everything on my phone. (laughs) Like, you can't tell me that there's no reason for it. In in addition to Devin's experiences conforming to band life at a collegiate level, he also sees... Layla, played by Zoe Saldana, day one across the courtyard, essentially hollers at her. And, and <laughs> so, and it's set up like she's going to completely reject him. But instead, it's like she falls for the thing that she called him out on. Like, do girls really fall for this? And then, like, they're immediately a couple. And I'm like, <laughs> Yeah. They didn't even play hard to get. Deirdre and Ernest. Like, I was like, why is like Ernest begins the movie just kind of talking down and begging Deirdre, who is very competent, obviously has gotten there on her own. And he's literally like, oh, I don't, he's just so like, being the only girl on the marching, on the thing. Like, yeah. And then for no real explanation other than like time and proximity, she's just like, hey, first of all, it seems like she like teases him a little bit as a way to be like, what are you up to? Which I understand. But then she like sincerely cares about him. And he's like, yo, I got to make it up to you. And we're together now because again, I just was negging you at first and now Mm -hmm. that was my way of flirting and you got that and you are supposed to want to be with me even though we haven't seen any kind of growth from Ernest nor interest from Deirdre. It's very much that he's teasing you because he likes you bullshit that we're fed as young girls. This This is another example of how women were told or taught to accept absolutely the bare minimum, the mm-hmm. the nothings. When a man for goes us out of his be... way to make you cry right. in the second grade, it's because he likes you. And right. You yeah. to learn this that. is this is how we get you know gaslit into dating men, essentially. <laughs> it's it's the truth. It's proximity. That's you just it's described true. a heterosexual relationship right there. <laughs> proximity. <laughs> <laughs> barely see, any words see, to your point jason weaver is tragically underused in this like this dude oh has charisma this dude has talent and like dude this was little michael jackson this is simba yes. like this dude can yes. do anything and i just felt like he was more comic relief he reminded me of like a role that i would see omar gooding in versus yeah. jason weaver so it just funny it, I that know. you would say that <laughs> i know right i know that smart guy switch <laughs> i would though i would switch him up Jason Weaver was one of my childhood crushes. Just be. just seeing him on screen, 
I was very upset that he wasn't around more. I would have preferred that we got rid of the Charles character. Mm-hmm. I agree. And just given everything. Like Jason, Ernest could have been frying fish. And let me just tell you this, at a, a, a from a college level, a black college level, there was always somebody doing some very questionable electrical <laughs> situations in our dorms. Like our dorms were so old. Yep. And I'm surprised they didn't catch fire, to tell you the truth, while we were there. But somebody had a hair salon in their in their dorm. <laughs> I know somebody was like making full on meals with a million electric cords. Like we were resourceful really pushing the yeah. limit <laughs> well well i mean danielle had blackbuster so i did she was adding to the the <laughs> commerce so at fam at fam we didn't have cable in our in our dorms again it was we had older dorms they every year was like oh we're going to change it up they have changed it now they actually tore down our dorm which makes me really sad Big ups to McGuinn Hall. And we didn't have, since we didn't have cable, I had all the movies from when I worked at Blockbuster and all the bootleg movies my dad would buy. And so I started renting out to the girls in my dorm. And I was, my business was booming because I never had to ask money for laundry or anything. I had it taken care of. Love a good side hustle. <laughs> Blockbuster, by the way, I want that to be a series. Uh, <laughs> Blockbuster, trademark, calling it. <laughs> you know what? BET started to call their movies back in the day that they would have, which was always Baby Boy for some reason. I don't know. Always why. Baby always. Boy. Always <laughs> Baby Boy. <laughs> But they had Blackbuster like on a Saturday or Friday. I was like, they don't, they don't fucking stole from me. I know one of you bitches at fam, you snitch. And that's yeah. how they got it. They sn- mm, snitches. <laughs> hey, can I say something real fast about that Zoe Zeldana, Nick Cannon relationship? Even though I felt they had chemistry, to your point about like, it seemed like he won her over very quickly without like mm-hmm. a lot of development. You know, we were saying in the beginning how, like, you know, Black movies had this monolith of, like, being hood movies. And I think that leading Black men were kind of put into that same bubble that was created by Eddie Murphy and later developed by Will Smith of, okay, if you're going to be palatable, if we're going to be the charming one, then you have to be ultra macho, you have to be humorous, you have to be able to say a zingy one-liner that will although offensive make a girl smile because she's so impressed with your your wittiness like there was just like an archetype of that that i saw portrayed in like the jamie fox show and steve Hartman. like basically every black sitcom of the 90s had that one ultra charismatic smooth dude who no matter how problematic was so just like charming that he got away with it but it happened on the other side like every adam sandler movie every white Mm. very not cute guy not even funny, somehow getting the hottest girl every time. It's because you're trained to look for his potential. Like, look past his flaws and look at, like, the thing about, like, Nick Cannon's character, Devin, in this movie, or as you, I was going to say, Adam Sandler's character, it's just, like, the fact that he's charismatic and he's funny and all this, all those movies have one thing in common, and that is when he gets his shit together he goes far so the girl is supposed to 
lock in like she's so almost supposed to buy stock low mm. so when he rises she can be like i was there on the ground floor like that's what they were teaching girls at the time and you are supposed to what all of these movies had taught us was to look at a man's potential and ignore what he does on a day-to-day <laughs> just mm. like but look at his he if he if if he gets his act together he's gonna go places and that's why and we're that's at. exactly yeah that's, that's why what we're at where we're at right now with this revolution and the the incompetence that's happening with our male partners and women are opting out they're like i i don't need this and this is a tale as old as time you kiss a toad you get a prince <laughs> 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 So we see Devin at one of their first games. Sean kind of challenges him and is like, if you want my solo, take it. And Sean thinks that Devin is going to choke. He's going to get out in front of the crowd. It's new. It's scary. And Devin rises to the occasion. He feeds off of it. He's there. And he also impresses the Dean who just wants that money. He wants shucking and jabbing. And he wants he wants the the school to make money. He don't he can don't I care. Just, can I say something in support of this dean who I know comes across as like this person who's not as caring about the artistry of the music, but what he's talking about, there's truth to it. Like when you're at a Friday night game, like the people who come to a football game are not always the people who are interested in complex musical performances. <laughs> right. They want something that's going to entertain them. And I've been at football games where there have been really complex, you know, halftime shows that were also kind of artsy fartsy and kind of highbrow at a place where people wanted a PD Pablo song to dance along to. Like, (laughs) I I, I think there's something about knowing your audience and like, like this is about money and generating money for them. So it just makes sense that he would say like, Hey, why aren't we giving people what they want? I think it's, I I'm not saying it's the best way to go about it, but I understand where he's coming from. I just, to, to volley that right back. I was going to say, to Orlando Jones's point, Orlando Jones is trying to teach these kids something because this is a college and the dean is like, well, we are also a business and we need that money. (laughs) And to me, again, if this is a sports movie, it goes right back to this idea of we want to use these children to get us money that's not going back to these children and if they leave here with less of an education does it really matter we got what we needed and i do think like there is this this is why i was like everybody in this movie has like a point but it's also they also have a kind of backside to to their own motivation because the dean is right that why aren't you playing music that the uh, the crowd can relate to absolutely right. right but his motivation is not to make sure that Devin knows music at the end of the day you know like right. he is on a scholarship he this is potentially what he wants to do he needs to leave college being able to read music right. but the dean doesn't care about that only Orlando Jones seems to really care that this kid leaves this place with a skill that he can then transfer into a life right and I think honestly what's missing for everybody is balance I I feel like he should want the kids to be educated but you can't have these programs especially from an HBCU from that that lens 
because especially if, if you happen to be a private HBCU, it makes it even more difficult because you're not able to get grants and, and financial backing from the federal government. So that yep. means that you have to potentially, not potentially, you have to completely depend on your alumni and outsize, I outsource money to come in. And that means during games, you got to, and for an HBCU, it's rare that it's about our football teams. Very rare. It, the, <laughs> when that guy says halftime is showtime, it's not a lie. Yeah. We are here for the halftime show. And yeah. you will really see half of the, like a good 80% of the people leave after the halftime show at an HBCU game every single time, unless just a miracle your team is winning. Miracle. <laughs> well again you have to know your audience you have to know who you're performing for like i, I don't know there's there's something about show business it's a show yeah, it's, it's a business. <laughs> so danielle i wanted your thoughts about the step routine at the house party you mean how zoe did or just <laughs> the oh, fact well, the fact that there was a how step zoe show. did specifically oh. she's so she, in her interview she said that her sister did step I think it wasn't natural to her and look for me I feel like I have rhythm I used to tap dance I I but I it would used take me to, a while. you still tap dance I do but I <laughs> okay. would have I would have <laughs> I would have trouble like step is not like my thing I so I could see there being some awkwardness for her especially again she is coming from a classically trained background she did okay for what it was now I'm thinking for most people going to a college party and then seeing randomly these fraternities and sororities just stepping in the middle of the party that might be odd but for a black school that is absolutely normal any one of the divine nine is going to pop up and do their their strolls in the middle of the party and you better not get in the way of them doing their stroll and you better not try to emulate their stroll and their signs and their call signs or whatever because that is like a sin and I remember going to college for the first time and experiencing a lot of the HBCU life for the first time in that way because I didn't go to a black high school and seeing this and just it was like a whole new world and and learning the rules and figuring it out and it was like it sometimes it felt like people were doing we didn't have tiktok then but i promise you every time there was a party there was a choreographed number every time there was a dance that everyone knew and i'm like where is this happening <laughs> when is this happening when are the lessons when is it? but then eventually you just you just learn it you figure it out and then you're so you're saying you you got to live house party too. Like, I did, uh, but <laughs> so in, in, in a different in in a different atmosphere. But like when even as alumni, you go back or you go to parties locally. There's like alumni, whatever. There are dances from your time period that everyone just just knows, and it's amazing. It's a wonderful like mm -hmm. un unifying thing. So that was very authentic in that movie of the of fraternities and sororities doing their stroll that's just absolutely normal just an everyday thing everyday occurrence so but did zoe pull it out 
No. I, I I noticed that like she started in the front, but very quickly <laughs> went to the back. <laughs> if you watch, there's a, a show that she did on Netflix called From Scratch. And there's a scene from her wedding because, again, she is a Black person. When I say Black, I mean she's an African-American playing an African-American person. And they are doing like the electric slide and you quickly see her jut out of that like she could not <laughs> run out of that faster because really? her doing mm. it's just mm. very awkward it's so sad so it sad is. no that's so it funny is. and you know what it's probably for the best that nick cannon was like his character was made to be like this prodigy because you definitely could not make that claim about zoe and step no mm. no no She's a philosophy major, guys. I I, I kind of would have preferred her to just be outside of like, maybe she wasn't in the band. She's in the stands, you know? She's she's a ballerina. Let play to her strengths. She did not. And the director said- There have been so many movies where someone comes in with no skills, but they take the time to train. She she did train. That was trained. Yes, she worked- she worked really hard. Like honestly, they it is what it is, but bless her heart. The the director and everybody said that like everybody was putting their heart into it and he was he said he was worried about Zoe in the beginning. So whatever we see on screen, it was worse. I just remember that it was I want worse. the rehearsal tapes. <laughs> you know what? To that point, I'll say that. I, I know that Nick Cannon used the double for a lot of the close-up shots, but I think he actually pulled off a lot of the wide shots in terms of the, what he was able to do on drums. I believe that he was actually doing that. He, oh man, when we start getting into, like when we get into the performances, I was amazed about like what happened there, but he was practicing so much. He had blisters on his hand. They all did, all the actors did. And like at one point, Nick, I think, burst his hand like open. Yeah. It just was a lot for them. So because you have to remember that they were playing against a real band. Mm-hmm. Uh, Morris Brown was it was after their season. This was the entire band of that college playing against them. And you here you have actors like you have actors you have band members from all throughout Atlanta, from high school, you have from other colleges trying to like piece together. And they only had like weeks to kind of figure that out. There's pressure to represent, especially when you're amongst the people who can actually do it. It's like, Mm -hmm. you need to prove that you deserve this role. And they were not happy either. Like so many people in that space were not happy about these actors in the movie. They didn't, they really would have preferred if it was real drummers playing these roles so even though they were in the movie they were mad and that final scene that we get between morris brown and the drumline of a and t that was real so the director what ended up happening obviously it was choreographed and you know whatnot but and it scripted that they were going to win a and t but Morris Brown did not come to play. So they <laughs> came, that scene where they play on their drums, which is like a synth, mm-hmm. uh, that was not something that 
they knew was going to happen. The director started, it it started to get so heated between these two, even though it wasn't a real competition, the director was like, I'm going to let this continue to happen. I'm going to actually flame, you know, fan the flames on this. On the fire. Yeah. Uh, and so he ended up getting two, two t-shirts, one that said like A&T on it and one that said Morris Brown and had it sewed together. He was playing both sides. And so that scene where they do that, Nick Cannon's face where he looks really mad, like all the actors looking, they were not acting. This was real for them. They were pissed. And Morris Brown would not let up. They they knew they were supposed to lose, but they did not care. So after they did that scene, the leader of the band, the fictional band, had to yell at his people because the director's like, what's going on? You gonna let them smoke y'all like this? And so they had to go back to and redo some of the choreography and come up with new concepts so like <laughs> that night before they had to shoot again nick cannon was like really taking it seriously that he's like i don't want my double to play anything like he really mm. went at it like hardcore so everything you see in that last scene that's really them going at it with each other which i thought was so cool because I, I had no idea Brings and, more heat to it, makes yeah. it more more yeah. realism. And it, like Nick Cannon, you know how like different actors have different like mannerisms and stuff that you can tell. Like Jennifer Anderson always flips her hair with her thumbs, and Angelina Jolie always touches her neck. Nick Cannon holds all of his tension in his lips, mm-hmm. and so it's it's so. I thought you were going like... to say he impregnates people, but yes, he does. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. too. But that's that's in his personal life. In his acting life, it's just and because the scenes are so intense and he's concentrating so hard on drumming and stuff, it was just very very noticeable in this movie. Well, Nick Cannon is an accomplished lip actor cannibals know this that he has a lot of training in lip acting so that comes across on screen excellent (laughs) the training paid off let me tell you (laughs) so before we get to the end scene that daniel was talking about we are at homecoming and Devin just can't help himself it's the drumline battle and he he kind of goes rogue the drum line tries to follow him as close as possible, but it results into in a fight between the two drum lines. And so Devin is kicked out of the band, but then he receives a box of tapes from his dad and starts to kind of develop his own sound and his own ideas of what the band could be. And so he goes down to record some of those meet Sean and they kind of get into a drum off, but it was like <laughs> recording the whole time, which was that real technology like that it would write music based on what you were playing. I believe that that I'm actually impressed. is real. That's really cool. Yeah. I, right. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I will say this whole movie, I wrote, I, I wrote it out, right? Like nothing, like some, you know, some things were like, oh, that's stupid, but this scene that's when it took me out girl i was like i'm done because who 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 fight like this y'all at coordination the coordination with the drumsticks in each other's face like come on bruh i don't believe this but this is what brings them together because (laughs) sean sees devin's value in that 
he can create these really complex beats. But we do have to note that before we could have this this coming of minds, to, that Dr. Lee did kick him off the team yes because at homecoming there's a like a literal fuss fight and it's just the epitome of him putting himself first over the entire band Mm -hmm. because he does say to one of his band members like oh man thanks you have my back he's like i didn't do this for you i did this for the team and that's where Devin has the disconnect but dr lee notices that like he tells sean like you are not the angel in this scenario like yes Devin is a hothead but you had the ability to be guidance I put you in charge and you didn't guide him you tell them if you have beef grill it up and eat it I saw that oh my lord throw it on the grill (laughs) so it's that conversation I think and I think Sean had to sit with himself and realize Mm -hmm. that he wasn't doing what was best for the band and he is able to then tell Devin that you are the best, but you're always going to be in your own way. You're not seeing your talent in a way that that's helpful. Things that if maybe Sean didn't let his ego and pride get in the way in the beginning, then we would have had maybe a different scenario. Yeah. Exactly. To, to your point, I noticed that Dr. Lee says to Sean, because Sean comes up to him and he's like, hey, now that Devin's off the team, I was thinking the drum should just be nine people in total. He's like, how long have you been thinking about that? And Sean's like, oh, just (laughs) now? He's like, was it just now? Or was it when you kind of embarrassed him and made it so everyone knew he didn't write music? Or when you challenged him for one-on-one? Or from the moment that you saw him? It's like, you always have kind of been playing this way where you, he was like, yeah, it's Devin now, but how soon before you think that you are better than the rest of the line? Does it stop at nine or does eventually it just get down to you're the only one who right. can do this? And I thought that that was a really good way of letting Sean understand that he himself was on a slippery slope. Like mm-hmm. he was so mad at Devin for making it all about him, but it's like, how are you not doing the exact same thing or on your path to be being the exact same way. And all of that resulted in what I thought was important, Sean being vulnerable to mm-hmm. Devin. And as we talked about, it's that moment where he goes, look, man, you are good. You're probably the best, but you will always get in your own way yeah. because it's not about you. It's about the band. And that moment right there was when I was like, all right, see, this is what Devin needs. In order for Devin to be vulnerable and learn and put down his machismo persona, he has to understand that he is not in a cockfight competition. Because that's the thing. If it's a battle of egos, where Devin's from, he has to maintain his, his presence. He can't let that go. But if you make it a safe space for him And you're like, look, I'm going to be vulnerable and I'm going to let you know right now, all I want to do is help. Then you give him the opportunity and the encouragement and space to trust you and learn from you. Right. Uh, I just wanted to throw out there that I thought a thing that was kind of fueling this rivalry was that I felt that there was a lot of homoerotic tension between them, especially <laughs> they, like like the, almost this Maverick and Iceman thing, like when they would get into each other's faces where it just felt like there was, 
there was just something there, <laughs> which I just thought was really interesting. One thing I wanted to mention about the tapes, because you had mentioned that a while ago, and mm-hmm. I just wanted to throw this out there. I thought it was really interesting that Devin's dad gave him funk tapes specifically, because when you're talking about this generational divide between jazz and hip hop, funk is the the missing piece that bridges the gap uh, of the two. And I just thought that was really interesting just from just knowing historically what black music was and seeing how they used it here. It was very similar. It's, it's being that missing piece that connects the, the two generations together. I also think that Dr. Lee could have done a better job he saw so many times where Devin and Sean were butting heads and he waited too long to have that conversation with Sean he could have been a better leader to say and even helped Sean's ego and aligned him a little bit better to say you might look at this boy as competition, but this is actually a really good opportunity for you to be a part of someone's journey and to be a good leader. We're talking about one band. It's not a competition. You both have every single person that you engage with. You have an opportunity to learn something that you didn't have access to before. You know, and, there is and- room for everyone at the table kind of situation. And that's the problem with Black exceptionalism is that it almost teaches us that only one of us can make it. And like, we have to look out for ourselves versus helping a community kind of get to the same positions that we've been able to come to. A hundred percent. And that's white supremacy in, in a nutshell, because crabs in a barrel, the idea is that crabs are trying to pull each other down. But that's because they're not, they're in an environment they're not supposed to be in. And that's not Mm -hmm. actually how they operate when they're not in mm. that situation. Mm. I love this. <laughs> I've just never heard that said before. And I love that idea of like crabs in a barrel is something I've always heard in my life. But this idea of like, well, they are behaving this way because they're in an environment they're not supposed to be in is so like that just adds another layer to that whole analogy for me. I heard it from somewhere. <laughs> I, I can't say it's my the news. Own probably (laughs) that's what she calls tiktok (laughs) that's that's the book i read i I, I was reading this book the other day (laughs) so we have homecoming so homecoming is really important at hbcu and i'm sure even a pwi when you're inviting someone to play you're going to find someone who's not got a really you like you don't want a competition at homecoming everybody wants a win alumni is there everybody wants yeah. a win you're you're gonna pick an easy situation right and in it but the flip side is that you do want a little bit of competition when it comes to the band per se it, just a little not for my school, there was never really any, but <laughs> other schools, I can imagine you want some some kind of riffing. But to to be noted, this idea of like the drum line and the them like having this thing on the field against each other is not something I ever experienced when we had our halftime shows and stuff like that. We would have our bands in the stands kind of playing against each other across and challenging to each other in that way. Um, but when it halftime came, you had your time to go 
and we had our time to go and that that was like it I do know in from the I think like from the high school bands that that the concept of the drumline thing that that does happen and my friend I asked him about those because I was like I don't remember us ever doing this at fam I even remember when I watched this movie saying like look at what they're doing for the movies because I never saw them really do this at school and he said that it it happened but it wasn't necessarily maybe as big because we didn't have like cameras and, and recordings at that time but after this movie it became a lot bigger concept and things that you know progressed after that so I just thought I would give you guys that nugget because that's, I was... that's a great nugget and <laughs> you know can I just say you said something about oh we didn't have the news one of the things I love about watching 90s sports movies is that there's always like an announcer no matter how high stakes or low stakes if I'm watching Little Giants there's an announcer if I'm watching Mighty Ducks there's an announcer and I'm just like do all of these places have announcers really like this like it's just interesting when they want to add drama to it they're just like we need someone in there giving the play-by-play <laughs> <laughs> well for Jackie and I who are very like not good with the sports we need that character always yeah. to explain what the fudge is going on yeah. and, and we still get it wrong when we explain every it time the yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously as we have said they win the the competition the oh they win the classic <laughs> okay so I explained okay. home, homecoming the classic is not necessarily accompanied by a football game this is just like band battle of the bands kind of situations sometimes we would call a classic a game where it would be a game we have a classic we in orlando every year where florida AM plays our rivals bethune cookman there are four historically black colleges in florida and florida AM, bethune cookman edward is it edward waters and Florida Memorial down in Miami. But yeah, sometimes the classics are a game and sometimes it's just like a battle of bands kind of situation and you have multiple bands that are invited and they come and they show out. That whole idea, that whole thing with P.D. Pablo, I want to say Bethune-Cookman did that exact thing at a classic before this movie came out. Wow. Can I say that like seeing Free and AJ... Was such a time capsule. I'm like, oh, Free and AJ are in this movie. And for those of you who don't know, like 106 in Park was wow. the black TRL, and it was Free everything. AJ were celebs. Like they were famous, <laughs> famous. So to see them in this movie as like the award presenters and uh, uh, as you said tc like the announcers to be yeah. hey this is what's <laughs> going on in the next step it was it was fun and it was like almost like anointing the movie <laughs> within that, black that's why it's like so weird that like bow because bow eventually was a host on 106 in park and terrence was it what's his name Ter- Ter- terrence oh, jay whatever yeah the he one who's in all host. the like think like a man movies now. Yeah, yeah. he's an asshole too. <laughs> but like they're like, oh, that 106 and Park and people talk about them. I was like, no, 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 no. 106 and Park was free and AJ. Yeah. And the it belonged way that, to them. <laughs> it did. And they left in solidarity because BET was about some bullshit, wasn't paying them, and they left. And it was never the same. It just it never was. We did get uh, also get an appearance by Stuart Scott. 
Oh, yeah. RIP. Yeah. So it made my little heart hurt a little bit since he has since left us. So they win (laughs) in a a drum off, obviously. Right. Devin was not allowed to compete, but I feel like there's kind of cheating a little bit because then they swapped him out for the drum line battle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there's the same rules that you have for like, like collegiate sports or, you know, because there are rules about like, you can't, you know, have someone who's not. Mm-hmm. Oh, on the yeah. on the roster. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, like like I felt like it was like the designated hitter. He was just the designated drummer in that situation. <laughs> yeah. And then coach promises promises Devin that he gets P one next year. Yeah. So he he's set up for next year. Which, by the way, in. if if the story arc was to have this overtly boastful arrogant kid humble himself him learning how to help out the team without getting anything out of it personally him not being able to join the drumline at the end just being like hey you're p1 next year or you're you're you know i don't know just to me i think that's a better arc for his character in general it's less satisfying probably from an audience perspective but i think it's a better arc i think that him like he doesn't play in the official competition or the big game only in this like little drawn off and then the idea that something that i remembered while watching or was reminded of while watching is he says no other freshman has made p1 so he was already being exceptional and then he lost it so for him to not get it back at the end but being like next year you you can get it i actually think is like a humbling thing Mm -hmm. of it's like hey you stood in your own legacy so to speak you had this thing that no one else had ever done and you lost it but you did earn it you did redeem yourself enough for you to still get that level next year, but it won't be no other, like there are plenty of sophomores who are P1. Right. You were the only freshman to do it and you lost it. I feel like that 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 is something in itself. I would have preferred if that like the, the Dr. Lee didn't just say, okay, you can do the drum off or whatever it's called. It would have been nice if his line said, you know what, Dr. Mm. Lee, I know that he, he's not supposed to be playing but we really need him or we we feel like the team is part of the team team. yeah then it would have seemed like okay like you know it it just bring it back around to like one team one sound like right and just being like he's our sound so to have him go it's like having all of us go because we're one team like they could have roped it back into the The drum line yeah (laughs) and then it wouldn't have seemed like the director kind of flip-flopped it but you know he's like okay I'm I'm listening to the team you know I agree with that I I have to be honest and and I apologize to any hardcore drum enthusiasts (laughs) I could not see a huge difference between like the finale performances and the performances that kind of filter throughout the movie like to me they were all like equally impressive and I just don't know that there was something about like the finale sequences 
where like, you know, when you watch Sister Act 2 and you're just like, holy shit, like this is like a moment and they're bringing it out. And I just don't know that that was the moment that I had watching this. And maybe if I were more into marching bands, I would be able to like pick up on like the complexities of things that they were throwing out there in those final battles. But it was just all kind of equally impressive. I didn't think one school is necessarily even that much better than the other school. It just kind of seemed like it was all kind of equal to me from not having the full education. I feel like the one that stood out was the first that their band performed in the final drum off where they like put the drums, the big giant drums Mm -hmm. in a circle and then like ran around it drumming. And there was like Mm -hmm. a lot of physicality to it. I thought that was way more impressive than the actual final where, which like won them the battle. Yeah. One snare like snare solo sounds the same as another snare solo to me. Don't hate me. Don't come out. (laughs) I mean, I I I enjoyed just like for me, I was watching when they were able to do the the drumsticks and then like they were hitting each other, like that that you know, baby girl would have dropped one already. (laughs) No coordination. You want me to do what? Yeah. But also- so I have, mm-hmm. I have a question. I hope you asked your contact. If not, I need this answer answered for me. Okay. Why do some of the chin straps go in their mouths? I don't know. I thought about that too, and I, I, I don't know if that they just purposely did that. So I, I have no idea. But I will find out. I'll ask. <laughs> I've tried I've never to Google seen it. Before. it. I, I found <laughs> why they do it in war, but I can't figure out why the marching band, and it's not everyone. Yeah. Some of them have them like under their top lip and some are under their chin and some are in between. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> well, Sigmund Ford would say that oral fixations, oh, that's you know, true. from birth. <laughs> <laughs> it's also to be noted that Jason Weaver's character joins a band fraternity and i just wanted to be known that this is an existing thing there are actual fraternities within the band even within i think different sections it's like a whole thing you know Um, what else is really funny too mm -hmm. different sections beef on each other and talk shit the trumpets think they're better than the flutes and they think they're better than and everyone talks shit about everybody i thought that was funny in the movie there (laughs) is this segment where every single section's like we are the most important (laughs) we are the heart of this band (laughs) everyone had a reason so yeah i thought that was fun i thought it it would be really I would love to see more movies dive into this culture because it is so rich and so many people have been deemed, you know, banner, but there's like so much more to it. And I'm 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 always intrigued about the drum majors too. Like FM, you for I think any band to be a drum major is huge. It's not an easy thing. Question are those uh-huh. the people with the whistles? Yes, they're the they're, ones. They're conducting the band. So yes. they actually have to, usually, typically the drum major is considered the most talented musician of the bunch. Mm. So to become drum major is like a major like status symbol, usually filled with a lot of ego. <laughs> and all, <laughs> you know, But it, it, that, it typically is that of just like, you were considered the best of the best. I was impressed that the drum majors were dancing with the dancers. Like they had learned the dancers routine in the, in the competition at the end. I also want to state that 
for some HBCUs, different elements are higher, like are higher ranked at different schools. My school that the band is what we're known for. We're called the Marching 100. I think at this point we're over 200 and something members. We we run deep. Now them dancing girls, cheerleaders, I don't know nothing about it at FAMU. I know we have them, but I don't know what they be doing. They're not the draw. They're not the They're, thing that the selling tickets. Yeah. We do, but at other HBCUs, the the girls I don't want to dance call them squad. dancing. Thank you. The dance squad. Cause I was about to say dancing girls and be very offensive <laughs> to people by accident. There's like a whole other yeah. situation going on. Not to say we don't have dancers. It's just, that is not like the priority, I guess you mm. could say. Sure. And if you ever want to see like that whole situation, I do think that the Beyonce homecoming concert is just a beautiful love life. Yeah. Yeah. She she just the it's mass it's masterful the way yeah. that they put that band. Whoever the director of that band was and how they did things was very beautiful. And yeah. yeah. To your point, and I believe we're at the end of the movie. Forgive me if, if we're not, but not I either. wanted to say I want more like you reminded me when you came out with all the movies that we had during our trailer. And kind of like save the last dance and all this other. There was a time where like a musical movie was like it. Like it wasn't a musical, but it was a teen movie about music. Yes. And the importance of music and the artistry of music or dance. And I'm like, I want more of that back because it is important. And all of the, like we've had so many of the arts removed or underfunded and like to remind people the importance of something like the drum line is really important and it it it's its own like I remember like Tar just came out which is like about the orchestra and then not too long ago we had Whiplash which mm-hmm. just like these are really high intense industries to be a part of and they take a lot of talent and a lot of skill and again when you understand like the mind that has to go behind not only reading music but understanding music and tempo and like what it does and how music really just influences our entire lives like worldwide I like I'm like bring back that teen yes. MTV movie. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah, we need yeah, like it. It's, it's interesting that there seems to be like a refocusing of this like post Lin Manuel era that we're in of just like having musicals, like traditional musicals come out. But I think CG bring up a good point about there being that subgenre even to that about the mu- movies about music, about a kid starting a band, about like you know even like roll bounce is kind of music adjacent. Like yeah. it's just like incorporating music and how we incorporate humans incorporate it into their lives is so much more can complex and more dynamic than just singing a song sometimes and I think that this movie is a great example of that and then you also have like music of the heart and like a bunch of other great movies that kind of touch on that concept as well of just how music helps you know even especially kids develop and learn but that's cyclical this is cyclical right like having those dance movies having it you'll know musicals when there's like the resurgence of musicals it is very much aligned to what's happening in the country 
especially in our economy, right? Yep. So yep. when we're in a good economy, honestly, we don't see a lot of like comedy movies and musicals and stuff like that. But when we're in the shitter, which we're very much there now, mm-hmm, you start mm-hmm. to see a resurgence of the. So it's it's very interesting to kind of track when those movies are greenlit and like we see a resurgence of them. So that's a great point because a lot of times traditional Broadway shows are priced out of a lot for a lot of people. So the only time that you would see movie adaptations are when people aren't going to see the shows live. They they can't afford the tickets. So it makes more sense that, that that's when they come into the movies. Yeah. Well, I, love I think that is drumline. We did it, y'all. We did it. We still have, I mean, this, I would say this episode was jam packed with fun facts. And I was very happy because the sad thing is a lot of times when we do, even if it's a commercial hit, if it's a black movie, it's usually not easy to find fun facts and, you know, it's a lot of work. So just finding that oral storytelling of the movie was very rich with facts because, I would say there's maybe 20 little factoids on IMDb and not all of them were like relevant. So sure. that's always sad. Let's see. <laughs> oh, one thing that I thought was very interesting was that Kim Porter was the real life inspiration behind Layla. Apparently Dallas Austin had known had known her since kindergarten. Wow. Right. Well, <laughs> kindergarten. I, I was just like, so that's also another reason I think that they pick Zoe Zeldana instead of like a Carrie Washington because just like Kim Porter's body type, especially. Yeah. Dallas said that Zoe had the same kind of vibes as her. Mm. So see that. Yeah. Poor, poor Kim. It's actually really interesting because that just reminds me so many of these people seem to be connected in a way and it's like so strange when you think like out of like this entire country there seems to be like a thread that connects all of these people and all of their stories yeah it's super weird same with presidents how many of the presidents that we've had are related to each other even barack is related to george w yeah weird (laughs) is it or is it all a play? Oh, here we go. <laughs> what else do we have? The The role of Devin was down to Nick Cannon and Lee Thompson Young. Now, I after finding that out, R. that R. made me, I know. But how much different would that have this movie have been with Lee Thompson in it? I probably would have seen it more because I was a <laughs> Thompson fan. I um, loved him. Like I was really sad when when like he passed because I was just like, oh, that dude had so much potential. He's, he's definitely one of the ones who I feel like was taken too soon, and yeah. I feel like especially now with like the resurgence and the appreciation of all things '90s and 2000, I just can't imagine he wouldn't just be like one of the most wanted. You know, like like yeah. I feel like had yes. he just been able to hold out a little bit longer, he'd be having like the making good treatment. Yeah. Where it's like everyone's like, yeah, or Journey Smollett, you know? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Appreciating their their rise from child stars to adult stars. Yeah. 
Dallas said that Nick had a similar energy of like he's like I wasn't cocky per se but I knew my stuff which mm-hmm. is just cocky he he felt like Nick kind of had that a little bit more than I guess Lee Thompson did yeah and Debrat was considered for the role of Deidre in what world Jesus <laughs> I have to remember what time period it was because, and it was Atlanta and stuff like that. But I was just like, wasn't she way too old to be playing that role? But maybe back then, not not necessarily. Maybe not. But also, are we going to try to put her in a heterosexual relationship? <laughs> <laughs> like you want me to believe that she's going after Jason Weaver? I just—that's what it, you want me to believe. <laughs> just even in Glitter, when she was like playing the backup dancer, I was just like. She looks like she wants to burn this dress that she has to put on right now. Like she looks so uncomfortable. A lot of people are uncomfortable during glitter. <laughs> uh, you're so mean. Glitter wasn't that bad. I actually oh, have I seen lo- that's no. that surprises me because your partner's obsessed with Mariah. I'm I'm obsessed. I'm we have to watch that movie together. It's a great drinking movie. <laughs> I do want to state that the original, so Tina, I do love that there was a black female screenwriter for this. So the original movie that they pitched, they started to make some sort of script for it. And Tina's like, I couldn't even read through. I wasn't, she's like, I can't rewrite this. But (laughs) what was originally pitched felt like a suburban band movie where a black kid comes to a white uptight school and brings the funk to the school. Of course it was. (laughs) Everything about that screen. (laughs) Everything about that. So the only thing I knew was that the main character couldn't read. He was illiterate. And I thought, no way could I rewrite this. So I like that they changed it that he couldn't read music. Yeah. But how we got to him what? not being able to read because i know dallas didn't say, right. said and he can't read someone said <laughs> that you're right think think uh praise be that there was a black woman <laughs> <laughs> and the director said he didn't like the racial implications or what he perceived to be the potential racial implications of doing that kind of story and and dallas's thoughts were he thought the original script was too comedic that's what you put but boy this is your life story they talk about you can't read and like it would have been nice if instead of being shamed for not being able to read music that dr lee and i know it was just not in his character but like there are so many incredibly famous talented musicians that don't know how to read sheet music definitely yeah like prince never learned how to read sheet music like if you're gonna compare yourself to someone right (laughs) well they even bring up stevie wonder in the movie but they don't bring up the fact that he doesn't read music yeah they're trying to Um, teach a lesson here people So I did, it, it was kind of disappointing, especially having a female writer. Shockingly, yep. this movie does not pass the Bechdel test. We only <gasps> got one out of three. <laughs> yeah, Deidre could have easily said something to Zoe's character. Yeah. So, like, fuck that. There, That scene where they do the drum circle and there's two, you use two women going like this at the end. 
they could have said girl we did that that's all that's all they had to do or like Deidre passes by after the step routine oh yeah yeah. and she's just like good job girl you really rocked it or something 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 or in the step routine Zoe's character could have said something to the plethora of women that she is sisters with well they weren't named because well, the one does come over and say, are you ready to step? Oh, so they have to be she's named, not characters. A named character. Gotcha. Guys, yeah. women do not talk to each other about anything other than men. I don't know if you've seen movies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Especially before 2014. Yeah, that's all they talk about. Or else this would be considered a chick flick. Like- <laughs> well, I'm surprised at how moved I was by watching this experience of rewatching this movie. <laughs> And I'm glad that you guys joined us. Before we get to our ratings, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on social? At Bruh Meets World on all of the places. That's at Bruh Meets World on TikTok, Instagram, all the socials, and email us at BrahMeetsWorld at gmail.com. And as always, you can find us at No More Late Feeds on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. And I'm going to start with you to see what is your now rating this is a same day rental for me (laughs) (laughs) this is a sunday afternoon it's raining what's on on demand okay (laughs) i guess i'll do this siege i'm going five day rental i personally think that we were able to pick up so much from this and i feel like this movie has a lot to say even if it's not necessarily saying it well I don't know. I feel like it's worth discussion. And it's a it was a fun ride. Yeah. What about you guys? I'm going today. It didn't resonate with me. And like you said, TC, like it just it it all seemed equally good. So there was no I didn't feel the stakes. It's important. It's important to like be able to distinguish. You, you shouldn't have to be a trained musician to distinguish who's better than the other in order for this movie to work successfully. Yeah. Am I going to watch this a bunch of times? Am I going to watch it again anytime soon? Probably not. But would I buy it again? Yes, because for me personally, mm. this is a little bit of history. I were I just there's a few movies that went that came out while I was in college that just are just always going to be my little my little nuggets. Well, I, I bought it on your behalf. I, I mean, <laughs> I have the DVD still, so. How's that DVD player working out for you? Don't start yeah. with me, Jack. <laughs> it's it's going to work. I feel the same. I was actually, my mom and I were backgrounds for The Waterboy. They filmed it in Orlando. Oh my God. And like the crowd <laughs> scenes. And every time that movie comes on, I'm like, that movie has a special place in my heart. <laughs> For some reason, that movie is one of my favorite Adam Sandler movies, and I'm terrified to rewatch it when we do the podcast because every movie we (laughs) watch that's Adam Sandler, I'm like, this is fucking problematic. Especially the water boy. I I feel like his character in and of itself is problematic. I don't know. I have to rewatch it, but. Except I did very much love rewatching The Wedding Singer, even though Jackie does not like it. Yeah. I, I like it's it. It's not a favorite. 
Well, if you would have any, if you have anything you'd like to contribute to the conversation, hit us up at our quick drop 909-601-NMLF, 909-601-6653, twat us at the Twitters, or leave a message on our Spotify for Podcasters account, and you can be featured on a future episode. And join us next week as we celebrate the anniversary of the classic Disney movie, Mulan. Ah, mm. Such a good one. I'll make a man out of you. you, Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you all so much. This was great. It did not feel like we've been on for over three hours. (laughs) Anytime. Anytime. Guys, you know you can invite us back, especially (laughs) if it's a good movie. And I know you guys wrote some down for us already, but we would love to come back and get into the weeds with you on another fantastic (laughs) 90s, 2000s era film. Well, we love that. We love you guys a ton. So, so happy. And as always, be kind and rewind.